new to Wallace, tuning into our worship service, so grateful that you've joined us. We're returning this morning to a series in the first epistle of the Apostle Peter. So our text is 1 Peter chapter 2. We're looking at one verse, chapter 2, verse 12. Peter writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, keep your behavior among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. When I pastored years ago in Charlottesville, Virginia, I led a singles group, and a new face appeared, young man, looked a little bit familiar to me, so I greeted him and asked him where he worked in town, and he mentioned such and such a clothing store. I said, oh, I've been shopping there recently, and with the most serious look, he said, I know, I've been watching you. Wow, was startled afresh that my life was on display. The way I interacted with the salespeople, the way I spoke, the way I treated my wife, how I handled my toddler at the moment. Peter is saying that when people in this community observe you, the way you carry yourself, the way you drive, the way you care for your yard, the way you treat other employees, the way you do business, whether you're arrogant or humble, how much you care about what is just and right and good, whether you are self-righteous, easily enraged, whether you cheat at sports, people notice you're on display and they're likely to draw conclusions about your ultimate loyalties based on the way you carry yourself. So let's ask three questions of this fact that in large part our lives are on display. First question, why should we care? <laughs> That's a pretty easy question to answer from the text. It tells us we should care because of the glory of God. Your lifestyle, my good deeds, should result in some measure in unbelievers bringing glory to God. Peter writes, so they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That is actually the ultimate desire of all those who know Jesus, that all the earth would bring glory and honor to the God, the living God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, giving him the, de the praise that he deserves. That's actually the motive for everything a follower of Jesus does. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10.31, you might turn there in your Bible, 1 Corinthians 10.31, Paul writes, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So you're asking yourself, your words, your actions, your thoughts, your responses, the way you treat people, does this honor the Lord? Does it reveal God's character? Does it comport with God's will? Does it reflect back to God 
something of the glory of his righteousness. Whatever you do, glorify God. Paul continues in verse 32, give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. That's everybody. (laughs) Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do. Here is an other-centered man, profoundly concerned for his impact on other people, seeking to please them. He says, not seeking my own advantage. That's the temptation for every one of us in virtually every situation, to seek our own advantage. No, not seeking my own advantage, but that of the many that they may be saved. Paul is self-consciously aware that the way he interacts, the way he's on display, wherever he is, would somehow bring about others finding salvation in Jesus, his Savior. Similar verse in Colossians 3.17, Paul writes, whatever you do in word or deed, that's comprehensive, this is your whole life, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So can I put Jesus' name on this? The way I act, the way I speak, the way I drive, the way I comport myself, the totality of my life. Can I put Jesus' name on it? Boys and girls, when you return to school, you're going to do tests. Your, your teacher will give you a test paper, and the first thing you're going to do is you're going to put your name on it. Because the work you do is owned by you. Your name represents your work. We want what we do to represent the work of Jesus. Jesus to be displayed. Jesus to be seen. So, beloved, why do we want everyone giving God glory? He deserves it. It is due him. He is owed the worship and the devotion and the obedience of all his creatures. When I pray for certain people to, be, to come to know Christ, to be converted, I'm mindful when I pray for them that the ultimate reason I want their conversion is that, that God would get from them the worship, the praise, the obedience, the devotion that he deserves. That is the ultimate reason for these people to be converted. God desires this glory because he deserves it. So we have this incredible privilege of, in some measure, putting the glory of God on display. God reigns. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have, you have this, this privilege of living in such a way as, as demonstrating that human being can actually joyfully submit to the reign of God. Now, that's something human beings have no innate interest in doing. (laughs) Everything about our souls chase against submitting to God. And yet, if you know the love of Jesus, you've experienced the grace of Jesus, you've tasted his mercy, you've seen that in his cross, in his resurrection, you have life, you have salvation, you have acceptance as a gift if you've experienced the wonderful love of Jesus. Then then it's this incredible privilege to show what he's like when he conquers a heart 
the famous Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon said, the sermons most needed today are sermons in shoes. Another famous theologian, Phillips Brooks, wrote this, a Christian's life should be nothing but a visible representation of Christ. So if, I, if you and I have experienced the love of God, we've been brought into fellowship with Christ, we've been wooed, we've been, we've been made alive, we've been brought to life, we've been saved, we've been delivered all by His grace, then we desire in some way to make Jesus visible, intelligible, and desirable. So would anyone know what a Christian is by observing your life? Would anyone want to be a Christian by observing my life? This really hit me in college. My sophomore year, for some reason, I set out this goal to get a 4.0 in my studies. At the end of the semester, I was getting close to the goal, and my roommate said, hey, our friend Laurie wants to take a study break together. Will you carve out the time? I said yes, but I failed to do it. I got intent on my studies, my self-advantage, my desire for studying hard to make the grades overrule this simple thing of taking a little time to go say goodbye to this young lady before she left for the semester. My roommate, not a Christian, was appalled by this. And in that day, they used to put little whiteboards on your dorm door, and he wrote me this note, Mike, I can't believe you stood up Laurie and you call yourself a Christian. 44 years later, I still remember the words. And you call yourself a Christian. I think the principle is what? Every person's words and actions reveal the one to whom they answer. And God wants these, these believers to, for the Gentiles to see whom these newly converted Gentiles answer. Is it obvious you answer only to yourself? Is it, obviously, uh, is it obvious you answer only to God? This came home to me afresh uh, sitting in a dining car on an Amtrak train years ago. I was seated at a table with a stranger and began to dialogue with him and started to share spiritual things with him. Turned out he was an atheist and he got up and left. Probably was trying to run away from me at the time. He got up and left and so I stood up subsequently and paid my bill to the attendant who actually was standing nearby hearing the whole conversation. And she looked at me and she said, those kinds of people scare me. They think they're accountable to no one. Spot on. So the way Peter is writing shows that there's an organic relationship between your internal life and the way you live. The private life of your soul is the soil in which everything else grows. You can't separate who you are publicly from who you are privately. Look at verse 11. These two verses really hang together. It's actually one sentence in the original language. He's, Peter writes, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Now, more than that in a second, let me tell you another story about how this really came home to me. It probably didn't have its impact on me that it should have at the time as a sophomore in high school, playing high school football around the Beltway in McLean. We had a football coach, and you know, after practice, you're out there winning, 
you're running your wind sprints and some guys, they slack off. They don't run the full wind sprint that they're supposed to. And we had one of our football coaches and they're always talking to you and jabbering as you're running and you're gasping for air and coaches are yelling stuff at you. And I had this one coach, Coach Miller, who said this, if you cheat on your wind sprints, you'll cheat on your wife. And of course, of course, we would, that's what we wanted to do to Coach Miller, just kind of, we would snicker, we would roll our eyes. Oh, right, Coach, if you cheat on your windshield, just cheat on your wife. What's Coach Miller saying? The same thing in my heart as a sophomore football player that would lead me to cheat on my wind sprints, if it's not dealt with, could in fact, later in life, lead me to cheat on my wife. Your private life is vitally important to your public life. And Peter, joining these two things is saying this, Christian, you woke up, at this, the, you woke up this morning at war with sin. The Christian is the one who through the spoils of the work of Jesus is at peace with God. Through everything Jesus has done, we're at peace with God. And correspondingly, we're at war with sin. So if I'm not battling indwelling sin regularly, faithfully, ruthlessly in my own soul, there's a very likely uh, possibility that sin is going to get the better of my relationships. So if I'm not at war with sin inside of me, I may eventually be at war with somebody else in my sphere of life. So you know Christians by their humility. They're honest about their own frailties. And they're not surprised when people mess up. They're careful not to think too highly of themselves. And they're so secure in the love of God for them that they can put other people in front of them. I'm on display. I often think, hey, it's the way I'm interacting before somebody else. What if that person walks into my church? One time I was in a hurry driving to work, and I came up the entrance, uh, entrance ramp to, to the highway, and there's a car very much in front of me, and I gassed it and cut that person off, exited to go to the church, they followed me down the exit ramp, turned right to go up to the church, they turned right, I went into the church parking lot, they drove up to the front door of the church. <laughs> Egg on my face. I tried to look at the lady and say, I'm so sorry, she was very gracious, but Am I acting in such a way that I want to see that person in my church the next Sunday morning? Okay, that's the first point. Why does it matter? Why should we care? The glory of God. Secondly, what sorts of behaviors does Peter contrast? He juxtaposes two kinds of behaviors. There's the kind that raises the ire of unbelievers. They see what we're doing as evil. And there's the kind that is easily recognized as good deeds. Or just to summarize it this way, I've done so far on your outline. There are good deeds that are mistaken for bad, and they are, there are deeds that are unmistakably good. So let's look at those two things. Deeds that are mistaken for bad. Peter writes, so that when they speak against you as evildoers. The language means this is a hypothetical situation in the case in which they then gossip and slander you as an evildoer. I don't know if you know your church history, but three of the things Christians were persecuted for in the first several centuries included treason, incest, and cannibalism. Does that surprise you? 
treason because when the Roman soldiers stuck a sword to the throat and said, Corias Caesar, Corias Christos, is Caesar Lord or is Christ Lord, they, Christians refused to call Caesar God. They knew the Lord Jesus Christ was God. And oftentimes their head were cut off for not saying Corias Caesar. Christians were accused of incense because of their love feasts and the, the holy kiss that they were enjoined to give each other. They, the uh, pagans looking on just draw the wrong conclusions about the depth of the love Christians had for each other. And cannibalism, obviously mistaken from Jesus' words, if you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will have life within you. Mistaken that, they accused Christians of cannibalism. We'll look later when we get into 1 Peter at a verse where Peter references the displeasure of the Gentile friends that his converts used to have. He says this in 1 Peter 4, 3, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. They're surprised. What happened to you, Mike? Why aren't you joining us? You used to party with us every weekend. What gives? What changed? Oh my goodness, what's wrong with you? And they malign you. They malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Talked to a lot of people over the years and, and heard their conversion stories. And there are cases of young people who went with the party crowd God rescued them from that. They were converted. They went back to the party ground to continue to be friends with those people, to be salt and light with those people, and they were rejected. They were maligned. They were scorned. They were shunned. Those people would have nothing to do with them. Perhaps we hear in those kind of situations echoes of Proverbs 29, 27. An unjust man is an abomination to the righteous, but one whose way is straight is an abomination to the wicked. There is an antithesis. There is a tension between those who love what is good and those who don't. What about today? In what ways are followers of Jesus mistaken? What are good things that they do that are often called evil? Some of you care about the rights of the unborn. You do things to protect and to promote and to preserve life in the womb. You sometimes experience scorn for that. You are maligned for believing life begins in the womb. Some of you believe, some of you make known in the workplace or with neighbors that there is only, way, well, only one way to God through Jesus Christ. And people scorn you as narrow-minded, as bigoted, as stupid for believing that. Some Christians believe in a six-little-day creation. They will find it amazingly difficult to be accepted in the scientific community for believing that. Some Christians refuse to work on Sunday, and there's often a price to pay. Sometimes, just when we voice a different opinion, when we share a biblical conviction, and we disagree with people, we're vilified simply for disagreeing with someone, as if disagreement has become the worst evil of our age. Anyway, the list goes on. No doubt, you've experienced it in your life, standing for something, following Jesus, and being maligned as a result of it. So let me give you three expectations in light of that. Don't expect all of your visible Christianity to be, to be understood by everyone who observes it. Don't expect that. Secondly, expect to be constantly watched. You're on display. Expect to be watched. 
And you should expect that as you are conscious of your impact on other people, as you're self-aware of how you come across, you should expect God to be glorified, Jesus to be noticed, something different to be observed as you're seeking to make Christ known. So there are deeds that are good that are mistaken as evil, and then there are deeds that are unmistakably good. Peter's saying, how do, you how do you refute accusations of wrongdoing? You do that with exemplary conduct. And virtually all human cultures share a consensus about the rightness of certain things, respecting authority, respecting the rule of law, respecting life, and respecting other people's property and their reputation. Without those, you have chaos. Without those basic, simple uh, human respects and rights, you have the dissolution of the way of life as the way God has designed it. Actually, all over the globe, every day, you have an illustration of this. People put into practice this principle when they drive. What makes driving possible? Everyone lives by the restrictions. I mean, would you ever venture out in your car if there were no restrictions? Anyone of any age could drive. Anyone of any mental condition could drive. Doesn't matter if you're drunk. You can drive any speed you want to. You can drive anywhere you want to. You're in a traffic jam. Just get in the other lane and go around. It would be absolute chaos. We all abide, for the most part, by those rules, those restrictions. They make life work. So all cultures acknowledge the goodness of kindness, compassion, sacrifice, being a good Samaritan. I doubt anyone vilified you for contributing to the college, food, uh, college park food bank during this time of COVID and the people that are needy in our community. No one, no one vilified you for giving of your resources to support the food bank. In fact, God's law lays out what is good for society. The second table of the Ten Commandments uh, unpacks what our relationship to our fellow man should be. As a rule, these things are accepted all over the world as what promotes what is good for human beings. America's laws generally were founded on these very things as well. And it's a fact that when Christians have gone into different cultures over the centuries, they have built schools, they have built hospitals, and they have sought to help the poor because it is good for people. So here's the challenge, I think. When you're doing something nice to someone, you're, there's a spontaneous opportunity to serve them, to be gracious to them, to help them. I find it necessary to say something. I don't want to just be, it's because human beings should be nice to each other. That isn't the ultimate reason. So I try to find some way that's not too cheesy at saying something like this. It's my pleasure to help you because Jesus loves me so much. I, I, I want people to know the ultimate reason why I'm doing that. And ultimately it is because Jesus has helped me so much. Jesus has loved me. It's my pleasure to show some help to you. Third question of this fact that Peter's getting at in this one verse, our lives are on display. Third question, when is God glorified by your behavior? Peter writes that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now I confess, Peter has something in mind here and I'm not exactly clear what it is. It's pretty ambiguous to me. Not all the commentators are agreed. Here's what is clear. 
it seems the backdrop to what Peter is writing are the words he heard spoken by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew 5. It was read earlier by uh, ruling elder John Daly. Matthew 5, 14, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. God gets the glory for any good thing you do. So it seems to me when I look at this phrase, there are three possibilities. First of all, unbelievers see your good deeds, are converted on the spot, and glorify God immediately. Second possibility, unbelievers see your good deeds, they remain unconverted, but yet when Jesus comes again, they'll glorify God for those good deeds. Third possibility, they see your good deeds, they're converted, and when Jesus comes again, we'll all glorify him together on the day of visitation. So let me tease those three out and just, just to tell you what some of the thinking is on these. Here's the first possibility. Uh, unbelievers see your good deeds, they're converted, they glorify God immediately. So the idea is on the occasion of their maligning you, calling you evil for doing good, they observe your gracious response to that. They actually see fulfilled Matthew 5, 43. You've heard that it was said, Jesus speaking, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. So your accusers are surprised by your response. They're alarmed. They're pleasantly uh, taken aback and they want to be like you so they're converted. One commentator says then on the day of visitation means this. They are visited by God's salvation by seeing the way you live they submit to Jesus' kingship, and they glorify God. They see your life making visible the invisible reign of God's love, his truth, his compassion, his justice, his peace, his comfort, and they conclude, wow, I was wrong about God. My eyes have been opened to see something new. I'm changing my mind. I want to know the God that you represent and that you reveal. Okay. Uh, Peter's actually going to give an example of this in chapter 3 where an unbelieving husband sees the conduct of, of a believing wife and he is converted because of it. Okay, that's the first option. Second possibility of what these words mean. Unbelievers see your good deeds. They remain unconverted, yet they glorify God on the day of visitation. In which case, the day of visitation, it, there's actually no definitive article in, in the original language. It's a day of visitation. But that's a normal word that refers to the second coming of Jesus. When Jesus appears at the end of the ages in glory, this is referenced many times in this epistle, nothing will be hidden. All will be known. In the spirit of Mark 4.22, Jesus said, nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. And so the idea is that when Jesus comes again, unbelievers will acknowledge, oh, you you were glorifying God in that thing that I called evil. And they will confess Jesus Christ as Lord, and yet that will be to their own destruction, not to the eternal life of those who know him in this life as Lord and Savior. So believers will be vindicated, as it were, on that great day. We can't expect that kind of vindication in this life. The scriptures lead us to believe we can expect persecution, and we can expect to be misunderstood. Here's the third option. 
unbelievers see your good deeds, they're converted, and they join you when Jesus comes again in giving glory to God. So here the day of visitation refers to Jesus' second coming. As I said a moment ago, this is a prominent theme in 1 Peter. I kind of lean in this direction as the right interpretation. All believers are going to glorify God when Jesus Christ returns, regardless of when they were converted. He will be on display. Oh, will we glorify him. So let me conclude with this thought. Regardless of how we precisely understand this phrase of Peter's, all believers live because of and for the day of visitation. We live because of the day of visitation, and we live for the day of visitation. Peter is drawing from the Old Testament this phrase, day of visitation. Day of visitation was used in the Old Testament to refer to a direct intervention of God into human affairs where God brought either judgment or blessing. So both the first coming of Jesus Christ to this earth and the second coming in glory at the end of the ages, both can be termed a day of visitation. Think of Jesus' first coming. What happened at the cross? Both blessing and judgment. Jesus was judged for the sins of his people. Why? Because when God visits you, that word Greek is important. It's the Greek word episkopos, and it means to look at closely. When God looks closely at your life, he looks at your motives, he looks at your heart, he looks at your thoughts, he looks at your conduct, what does he find? Sin, wretchedness, rebellion, all that is odious to him. When God looks closely at any human being, that's all that he finds. And yet it is in love that Jesus Christ takes that in, in judgment on the cross so those who trust in him have faith in him will never face judgment for their sin Jesus willingly in an act of unspeakable compassion and mercy removes your sin and the judgment to your sin he bore this judgment to bring you blessing the blessing of forgiveness the blessing of cleansing, the blessing of a new heart, a new life, eternity, acceptance with the Father, what we call justification, knowing God sees you as absolutely spotless and righteous. See, what makes you a follower of Jesus isn't your good deeds. It is your reliance upon Jesus. And think of it, his deeds were unmistakably good, and they were also mistakenly perceived as bad. You even see it right at the conclusion of his earthly life. There he is hanging on the cross, and people are scorning him, mocking him, saying, if you're the Messiah, come down from there. See, he can't even do that, maligning what Jesus is doing. And of course, he wouldn't come down so that he could save all of us who are his enemies, all of us who scorn him, all of us who desperately need a Savior. Jesus stayed on the cross to take the judgment for our sin and to open for us the floodgates of the mercy and the love of God. That's the first coming of Jesus. What will happen to the second coming of Jesus? It's a, the, the day of visitation, the last visitation. Judgment and blessing. God will finally judge his enemies. Everyone will get exactly what they deserve. Let me just plead with you. If you don't know 
that you belong to Jesus. If you have not put your trust in Jesus, you have not asked Jesus Christ to save you from your sins, you have not given Jesus the title to your heart, you have not said, you are my Lord and my Savior, this is the day, this is the time to do that. There's a judgment coming. It will be horrible beyond imagination. The Bible tells us that human beings would rather boulders fall on them than face the judgment of God. You don't have to face the judgment of God. As long as you have breath, call on the name of the Lord. He will save you. That is his delight. He would bring you to himself. Ask him to give you that faith. Ask him to work that repentance in your heart. Ask him to give you life. The second coming of Jesus will be marked by judgment and it will be marked by blessing. Those who know Jesus will enter into his glory. They will enter into the joy of their master. They will be rewarded for what they've done in this life. They will be publicly vindicated as having done it for the glory of God. We will inherit the entire renewed earth. We will see Jesus face to face. We will be completely like him through with sin. Enter into an existence without sin, sorrow, sickness, sadness, death. And Jesus will put us on display as trophies of his grace. One life, just one short life to bring glory to him. Let's pray. It's amazing that by your spirit working in us, as a response to your gracious salvation, we can glorify you. Work that in the Wallace Church family. We're on display. If we name the name of Jesus, people have every right to wonder what Jesus is like by watching us, listening to us, observing us. So we pray for Jesus' glory and the glory of his Father, that by grace you would issue forth from us that light, that salt, that would make you known. What could be better? We pray for Jesus' sake and his name. Amen. Our hymn of response is 461.